0: Episode 108. What has the Black Death ever done for you? Last week we heard a bit about the Black Death and its arrival in the medieval world. We tried to avoid the numbers, but this week there's no escape. This time we're going to join the long-lasting debate about the impact and legacy of the Black Death, and that's going to avoid numbers. The first number has, of course, to be... How many people actually died in England? If you relied on the chroniclers to estimate numbers, you'd go mad pretty quickly. Numbers are traditionally not their strong point, they take the fisherman's, the one that got away approach. The thing they do give you, though, is an idea of how it felt. And it felt like meltdown, like the end of the world. Most chroniclers, therefore, talk about more than half of the population dying and all the way up to 90% of the population dying. It's pretty clearly accepted that these are overestimates, which do more to demonstrate the horror and impact of the plague more than give an accurate record of the actual numbers of deaths. But one of the joys of studying medieval history in England is that we are comparatively well served by documentary evidence, comparative to other places, that is. And that means that the best stab we can make at numbers is with the clergy, where there are good ecclesiastical records kept about the number of benefice clergy who die and need to be replaced during the period. Taking all of these figures gives us a figure of around 45%, yes, 45% of the population dying. Now this seems just extraordinary, but the figures are remarkably consistent, and these are the most reliable figures. But there are other sources of secular data, and these tend to be much more variable and a little less reliable. So you get things like post-mortem inquisitions, for example, or the various dues people had to pay when inheriting a position vacated by someone else who had died, the heriot. All of these tend to bring the estimate much lower, all the way down to 20%, according to some historians. And so you're left with the delights of the medieval world that sometimes understanding is more important than the actual numbers. The best we can say numbers wise is that between 25 and 45% of the population died. So what does that mean in actual numbers of people then? Estimates for the population of England at this time vary between 5 and 7 million. And so if we apply those percentages to this range we have a range at the very lowest end that one and a quarter million people died, and at the highest end that something like three million people died during the first bout of the plague, 1348-50. Maybe it's a little irrelevant. The real point is that the English and the Western world went through hell, and every single person living in England would have been personally affected, even if they were not personally infected, and the world would never be quite the same again. Interestingly, also, one of the firmly held myths about the plague is that there are loads of these plague villages around, i.e., grassy humps in the ground that marked where a village had died forever during the Black Death. In fact, there's no such dramatic rise of these villages. Many either disappeared or were in decline before the plague arrived. There are plenty that got smaller and went into decline during the Black Death, but not many that actually disappeared. So, here's a bit of information you may not want to know. One of my mother's favourite snippets of poetry comes from Cymbeline. Fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter's rages. Thou thy worldly task hast done, home art gone and tain thy wages. Golden lads and girls all must, as chimney-sweepers come to dust. A slightly laboured point I'm making is that no matter what kind of privileged golden child you might be, Death will visit you in the end, just like anyone. And this is a theme that grows in the later 14th century, and particularly in the 15th century. Man's mortality, the pointless vanity of the living. The Italian artist, for example, Orcagna, was a survivor of the plague. And in 1348, his fresco, The Triumph of Death, reflected this exact theme. That death knows no favourites, and comes to all, rich and poor, old and young. In the picture, a king and queen are out hunting when they come on three graves, each with a nasty-looking corpse. Not far away, there's a group of golden youths partying, not noticing that death is watching them. Meanwhile, a procession of lepers and the blind beg for death, but death ignores them, because he would rather take the young and the beautiful. It's not just the plague that leads to the 15th century obsession with death, but it is part of the story, and it would seem rather unsurprising, wouldn't it? But, as a by-the-by, it's worth noting that in this first iteration of the plague, it's not true that death preferred the golden lads and lasses. Yes, the rich and famous were not immune, but the evidence seems to be that this round of the plague hit the rich less hard than the poor. 27% of the tenants-in-chief, for example, died. Only 18% of English bishops, as opposed to 45% of their clergy. The plague, again unsurprisingly, hit hardest this time around at the old and the poor. The rich often lived in stone dwellings, away from the black rats. Being able to isolate yourself was no guarantee of safety by any means, but it did improve your chances a bit. you may gather that 1349 was not the only instance of the Black Death in England. Maybe one of the biggest impacts of the Black Death in 1349 is actually that bubonic plague will now be endemic in Europe, and it will strike again and again. So there will be outbreaks again in 1361, 1369, the 1370s and 1405, and these will often have a mortality rates of 10 to 15 percent. Now clearly that's not a patch on 1349, but hey, it's pretty nasty in 1361, for example, it'll be the children who are most hit as the population struggles to recover, and it became known as the children's Plague. Local plague outbreaks will occur until well after 1500, although England is not exceptional in this regard. The plague reoccurs on the continent as well. Population in England recovers much, much more slowly than it does in France, for example. Now, as we know, population estimates are notoriously inaccurate in times medieval, but insofar as it's possible, I've put a little table up on the website comparing England, France, Italy, that sort of thing, and their populations. The Black Death is often presented as one of those defining moments in human affairs when everything changes, an event which changes the direction of human history. Even those numbers, that's not surprising. And By the spring of 1349, the plague was in full swing. In London, the number of people who died rose steadily, 20 a day, then 40, then 60, until after Easter, more than 200 were dying every day. This seems to have been the typical profile, a rising trend over a month to six weeks, and then with the scourge having mainly passed after three months. Edward cancelled the January 1349 Parliament to be held at Westminster for fear of the plague, and London probably lost somewhere between twenty and 30,000 dead before the end of the summer. In the West Country, so many of the clergy died that the bishop allowed the laity to hear confession and horror of horrors, even if that was a woman. Confession had always been the most jealously guarded role of the church. Only the most horrible catastrophe could have allowed such a move. In Oxford, the university was decimated by the plague, just like everywhere else. Winchester in the south, ancient capital of England, was hit particularly hard with close to 50% of people dying. The bishop there managed to communicate some of the horror when he wrote and into those places now none may dare enter, but fly far from them as the dens of wild beasts. Every joy has ceased in them, pleasant sounds are hushed, every note of gladness is banished. They have become abodes of horror and a very wilderness. Fruitful country places without tillers are deserts and abandoned to wilderness. The vast numbers of dead gave the authorities terrible problems with public health, where to bury all those dead folk. It's at this time that Walter Manny bought and opened a cemetery in London, where the Charterhouse Monastery would end up being formed. Excavation at Smithfield have shown the mass graves created in the plague, where body lay direct next to body. One monk remarked, To our great grief the plague carried off so vast a multitude of people that nobody could be found who would bear the corpses to the grave. Men and women carried their own children to the church and threw them into a common pit. From these pits such an appalling stench was given off that scarcely anyone dared to even walk beside the cemeteries. It's really easy to get the wrong impression from this. I think the image I had in my head was of bodies left lying around rotting in the streets or thrown carelessly on top of each other into vast, mass graves. But in fact, excavations show bodies neatly laid out in a dignified fashion. Some of the bodies, true enough, do show some sign of decay before burial, but most don't. The evidence is of a society under extraordinary pressure, but doing its best to maintain normal standards. The Chronicle of Florence in particular painted a horrifying picture of the lengths that people went to in avoiding the plague and the less attractive side of human nature with small groups cutting themselves off in a vain attempt to survive or throwing themselves into an endless stream of partying to make the most of whatever time remained to them. Sadly, we don't have the same kind of chroniclers in England. No great text that throws a light on human behaviour in times of extraordinary stress. Maybe that lack of outward panic or emotion in the chroniclers reflects English society's reaction in general. There are none of the mass hysterias and uprisings that we see in Spain, France and Germany, but there is plenty of suspicion from the chroniclers that it's the rich with their fancy clothes and naughty tournaments that have riled God and got him going, and suspicion from the poor that somehow the rich are having it easy while they suffer. For sure, the Black Death does nothing at all to heal any divisions in society. And in fact, given that medieval society holds its strata and roles very dear, the Black Death contributes towards a new divisiveness between rich and poor. However, as we'll see, the general story is of a society that does its level best to stick to its accepted ways of doing things. Maybe the harshest light was shone on the church. This should have been the church's Big moment, of course. In a world without medical explanation for these events, the religious was the only game in town. But the church signally and comprehensively failed to step up. First of all, medieval man was justified in asking why the church hadn't seen all of this coming. I mean, it's all very well telling the world that this is God's punishment, but a bit of warning and an opportunity to mend our ways would have been appreciated. And then there are just too many examples of the church failing in its duties. For example, Bishop Ralph of Bath and Wells took himself off to his country manor and stayed well out of the way until the plague had done its worst. While he sat there just to make it worse, he had the nerve to send out a lot of letters moaning about the quality of behaviour of his staff and telling them to pull his socks up. He complains about a lack of priests willing to take on new parishes, quote, perhaps the fear of infection and contagion. Now when it was all over and he started travelling again, Ralph held a special service, and there he was attacked by the contemptuous locals, and he was forced to hide out in the church until the Sons of Perdition, as he called them, got bored and went away. The Bishop of Ely, now he was in Avignon when the plague hit his diocese, and he made damn sure he stayed right there. Now, I have absolutely no doubt that there were plenty of parish priests who showed enormous courage and did their duty. But overall, the church didn't help itself. One of the trends particularly noted by both church and secular society was the demand by new priests to get something extra for their pains. The chronicler monk Knighton wrote, And whereas, while there had been plenty of priests before the plague, and a man might have a chaplain for five or six marks, At this time, there was scarcely anyone who would accept a vicarage at £20. It's a little unedifying to see priests haggling over the silver before they'll go and save men's immortal souls in the biggest crisis ever. And at the same time, the regular church found itself compared most unfavourably with the mendicant orders, like the Franciscan friars, who seemed to turn up in a village and do their duty. Senior churchmen in England and the continent probably took the wrong tack when in 1351 they appealed for the abolition of the Franciscans. I think Pope Clement's reply is the clearest indication that the church had not covered itself in glory, bearing in mind that Clement himself was hardly in the business of self-denial. This is the chap who'd sat continually between two fires in the height of the summer heat to avoid the plague, and had something of an eye for an attractive ankle. So when the bishops demanded the Franciscans be shut down, Clement thundered. And if their preaching be stopped, about what can you preach to the people? If on humility you yourselves are the proudest in the world, arrogant and given to pomp, if on poverty you are the most grasping and the most covetous, if on chastity, but we will be silent on this, for God knoweth what each man does and how many of you will satisfy your lusts. Burn. And at the same time, of course, it was quite clear that God himself wasn't handing out any special favours to the clergy. They died just like everyone else. And in fact, once the plague got into a monastery, given the closeness of the monastic life, death rates tended to be substantially higher than the average while the church suffers something of a branding problem, though, there's no let-up in religious fervour. In fact, rather the opposite. There are masses of chantry chapels opened up all over England, if you'll pardon pun. But maybe that simply indicated a desire to stop God from visiting the plague on them again, because the second half of the 14th century would see a new level of questioning of the church, with the activities of the Lollards and Wycliffe while in Italy, a significant section of the Franciscans, who believed in absolute poverty, this time declared the Pope a heretic. So at very least, the Black Death ushered in a new era of questioning of the Church and of their role. All of which leaves us with one of the most popularly debated theories in history about the Black Death's long-term impact on society, how it changed the social order of things, and set out the conditions that would lead to the modern world, the catalyst without which the digitally controlled motorized cheese grater couldn't have been born. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So let me take you off to Oxford in the mid-19th century and the man who started this particular ball rolling. You need to imagine a tall man with a big bushy beard dressed in clerical gear. He's getting on a bit now, so he's stooped, but he's still aggressive and irascible. We're talking about a 19th century economist, politician, writer and historian called Thorold Rogers. Rogers was a radical and a liberal in the 19th century meaning of the word, i.e. a great believer in free trade. He was a firm believer that a lot of history could be explained by the efforts of the privileged classes to hold back the poorer, and he was fascinated by the Black Death. His interest was something of a turnaround as it happens. It's slightly difficult to believe, but a topic which we find fascinating and compelling these days was traditionally, or pre-Rogers anyway, considered a bit of a sideshow of the, oh yes and a lot of peasants died, variety. For centuries the Black Death was a footnote. Of course, once Rogers had lit the blue touch paper and retired, every man and his dog were at it. And now a historian can't buy himself a pint of beer in a pub without tripping over a dozen theories on his way to the bar. Anyway, Rogers' basic hypothesis was that the Black Death revolutionised the economic basis of society and thereby its social structure. The idea was that the disappearance of such a massive percentage of the labour force meant that the people who worked for wages suddenly found themselves the proud possessors of their lords, Short and curlies they could now charge a vast amount more money because if their lord refused to pay, the labourer could just hop over to the neighbouring manor and get themselves a pay rise there and the previous chap would be left with empty fields and nobody to tend them. At the same time, the villainous villains could insist that all those demeaning feudal services and labour dues they owed could be scrapped and changed instead to honest rents. And so in one cataclysmic event, England began to be populated by free men. But the traditional state and feudal vested interest fought back with laws and taxes, which in the end led to the conflagration of the Peasants' Revolt of 1381. Now, the world and her husband has had a pop at this theory. This is, after all, the way of history. Someone pops out a good idea and everyone else tries to make marmalade out of it. But it has to be said that it is one of those theories that, though battered and bruised, looking slightly hungover and sporting a bit of a limp, is quite remarkably resilient. And okay, it's most certainly true that prices fell like a stone, and wages rose like bilio in the immediate aftermath of the plague. Here's Henry Knighton, the chronicler. The price of every commodity fell heavily. A man could buy, for half a mark, a horse which had formerly been forty shillings. A large fat ox cost four shillings, a cow one shilling. Sheep and cattle were left to wander through the fields and among the standing crops, since there was no one left to drive them off or collect them. So few servants and labourers were left that nobody knew where to turn for help. So without doubt, landlords were often desperate for workers. There are many famous quotes from the plague, such as that one we had last week from Arturo the Fat about burying his children, but oddly, I think probably the one with the most impact for me is a simple, factual and unemotional record in the Bishop of Durham's manor rolls. No tenant came from West Thickley because they are all dead. That kind of brings it home, I think. Here's a less stunning quote, but which makes the point a bit more clearly. Two caricates of land which used to be worth yearly 60 shillings were worth nothing because the domestic servants and labourers are dead and no one is willing to hire the land. So I'm probably labouring the point now. Suddenly far fewer people, difficult to find the staff anymore. As a result, the argument goes, wages rose because there was lots of competition to get people to work for you. prices fell because there were far fewer people to buy stuff especially manufactured goods so with this economic leverage wage earners and peasant farmers were able to rewrite the rule book since prices of goods were falling and wages were rising there was no longer any incentive at all for lords to work and extend their domain lands so why is that then well wages were rising so they had to pay their workers a fortune but on the other end the stuff they grow on the farm wasn't worth the rough end of a pineapple when they got it to market. So that's not great, profit-wise. So, rather than growing the stuff yourself on your own domain, better by far to find a tenant farmer to take it on for a solid and reliable rent. The peasant farmer could then worry about making ends meet, while the boss went off to find some French esquire dig give a good beating and ransom off, tally and, if you will, ho. So, there is a move to wage labour and money rents. That means lots of people wandering around who aren't tied down like serfs to specific feudal services. They can move around a bit more and take up new tenancies. Or they may be labourers who sell their mowing services door to door. In short, suddenly you have a much larger, freer labour market and the beginnings of a consumer market. And then also, because there are so few people around, the gap between pay for unskilled and skilled labour narrowed. Skilled artisans who had previously been the bee's elbows sometimes now moved into agriculture even, since the demand for manufactured goods fell and agricultural wages were relatively high. So, in defence of Thorold Rogers, let us take one medieval man, Richard Taylor. Richard was ordered to serve his lord, William Lean, for a whole year as a ploughman. But William said fie to that and shook his thumb at the idea. Richard instead took on lots of short contract jobs all over the district. And in relative terms, he cleaned up. In August and September 1374, he earned 15 shillings. Yes, I know, 15 shillings. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a hill of beans, i.e. about 75p in modern money. But before the plague, 13 shillings would have been a ploughman's earning For the entire year. Yes, the entire year. So Richard is now our symbol of the new economy, free labour. It's all terribly convincing. And possibly the most convincing thing about it was the way that the old guard, in the form of Edward III as much as anyone, reacted. Parliament duly passed the Ordinance of Labourers in 1349 and the Statute of Labourers in 1351. Basically, these saw that the peasants were getting uppity. Labourers were getting the idea that now for once they had the power to change their lot in life. So, they made the best possible attempt to put them right back in their place. I think there are a few things which demonstrate just how different the medieval world is to our own than this ordinance and law. I've posted the statute on the website, by the way. These laws did a few things. They restricted the right of movement to try to stop people looking for a better offer in the next manner, so that's great, because it's a bit tricky to negotiate a higher wage if there's only one bloke who can offer you a job. Linked to that, they made the gift of arms illegal to the able-bodied, so you couldn't even refuse to go to work and hope to pick up a few handouts to keep body and soul together while you stuck out for higher wages. Then they forbade employers to offer more wages than they had done three years before, which is basically a way of fixing wages and punishing class traitors. And finally, they fixed prices of key products to protect the income of landholders. To the modern mind, the whole thing is extraordinary. To the medieval mind, it was an attempt to hold on to the eternal verities, the traditional hierarchies which formed the very basis of society and which now seem to be under threat. Many historians dismiss the statute as a hopeless and doomed attempt to hold back the tide. But let it be known that plenty of people were prosecuted, although generally not heavily fined. And also, wages did indeed fall back from the highs of the years immediately after the plague. OK, they didn't come down to pre-plague levels, but they did come back quite close. And there were plenty of prosecutions, so it's not so easy to say that the statutes didn't have an impact they did a certain amount of tide-holding. And look, just as there's no pleasure without pain, there is no neat historical theory without its holes. And so to the counter-argument, the Rogers bashers. Some bright spark pointed out that if all this was true, one of the things you'd expect to see is a bunch of very rich peasants moving their way up the tree, taking on large tenancies. And there is a bit of that, but in fact... don't see as much as you'd think. And there is a problem with Roger's basic assumption that the supply of labour becomes scarce because a third of the labour market have gone and died. But what if the number of labourers was already twice as big as it needed to be? Then you'd just have a return to the good old days. And what you clearly have in early 14th century England is not unemployment necessarily, but it certainly is underemployment i.e. you might have two peasants on land that really only needed one to tend it. And that meant that although losing 40% of the population sucks, if you do have a population twice as large as it needs to be, it will have less impact than you might think. Then there's that flexibility thing. A free market of labourers, free wage earners, wandering around ready to buy whatever they want to buy. Well, given the trend for landholders to not bother with farming of their own land and go and find tenant farmers, a lot of these supposed pool of free labourers actually went and acquired a bit of land as tenant farmers. And another thing. I said that in the immediate aftermath of the plague, wages rose, prices fell. True enough. But as we've just heard, after a few years, prices start to rise again, probably impacted by unstable weather conditions and wages didn't rise anywhere near as fast as you might think. So the changes don't appear to have been as dramatic or as consistent as Rogers claimed. There's no immediate transformation. In fact, you might argue that the amazing thing about the plague is how incredibly easily it is dealt with by society, and how little changes. The estates of the Bishop of Winchester, for example, have been studied in a lot of detail and we can see that vacant tenancies were filled pretty quickly. And in fact, the Bish has something of a windfall in the immediate aftermath, as the new landholders had to pay the traditional heriot to take up their new land. So in actual fact, the Bish's income goes up very significantly in the year after the plague. The point about all this is that it's patchy. We've got winners and losers. Some towns, for example, actually grow, because they're more successful people travel from other towns to go there. And it's the same in agricultural areas. Poorly run estates with oppressive landlorders lose out because their tenants run for it and move to better ones. Medieval society was deeply conservative. So the sight of those peasants taking advantage of their newfound influence offended the deeply ingrained belief in the structure of society. Writers like Langland and Chaucer were horrified by such brazen behaviour. And Langland makes a hero of a peasant who does what a traditional peasant always did. And Langland makes a hero of a peasant who does what a traditional peasant always did, and remembered his station in life. The statute of labourers was an expression of this conservatism, not just repression. So what are we left with then? The plague and his irrelevant blip, despite the death of maybe three million souls. Rogers was an interesting chap with a mind like a bacon slicer, but on this one he got it wrong. Well, as with most things in history, sadly, the answer's probably somewhere in the middle. The basics of medieval society did not get changed overnight by the Black Death. Despite the enormous strains and continuing shocks from following plagues, The structure of society basically survives, as did its economic structure. But that's not to say nothing had changed. There was a subtle change of mindset. The peasantry expected to be able to change their lot, to have more freedom of choice. Their faith was every bit as strong, but the church no longer quite had the solidity and respect it once had. There was a greater sense of fluidity. The plague maybe wasn't the single dramatic changing force it was once thought, but it was definitely, without doubt, a catalyst of change. So what of Edward through this period? Well, Edward through parties. At Christmas 1348, there was a great tournament at Otford in Kent with all the normal dressing-up going on, and then one at Merton in January, and then in April, on St George's Day 1349, at a tournament where Edward founded the Order of the Garter. Now, by Jiminy, there's more debate about the order of the garter than flies on a pile of poo. For such a famous institution, it really is surrounded by a remarkable amount of mystery. Edward formally instituted an order of 26 men who would joust and pray together once a year. The order was founded with its own motto, since Edward did love a motto. y soit qui malepance. Shame on he who thinks evil of it. And ever since then, we've been in a pother. What did it all mean? The traditional story is that the beautiful Joan of Kent, or the no doubt equally lovely Countess of Salisbury, lost her garter while dancing, and so Edward picked it up. There were lots of giggles, and so Edward's motto was loyally standing by the lovely countess. Well, as it happens, it was blokes that wore garters at this time, not women. So it does seem clear that this is a story that's been added on afterwards. Though as Ian Mortimer points out, it's quite possible that the Countess of Salisbury was on everybody's mind at the tournament. She was undoubtedly a great beauty, and was being argued over by the Earl of Salisbury, her husband, and the man she clearly actually wanted to be with, Thomas Holland. And eventually, she got her way. So all of that was in the air at the time. Then with the motto, the idea is that it must refer to his claims in France. And I think this is a pretty good one, but it's by no means certain. Maybe it was just that he liked mottos and this was around at the time. After all, it's easy to read a lot into things that aren't there. I remember hearing Jimmy Page being interviewed once about why the Zepp's latest album was called In Through the Outdoor. Jimmy sounded confused. Well, said Jimmy, it's uh, not normally the door you go out of, is it? The point about this is twofold, really. First of all, Edward might just have decided on that motto because he liked that motto. And the second point was that Jimmy was great when he stuck to the 12 string. Even the purpose of the order isn't clear. It's always assumed that it's a chivalric order, but actually the only thing we really know about it is its association with a long list of religious endowments. Richard Barber's equally convincing theory is that it is in fact a religious foundation. In the end, all we can say for certainty is that it happened. It happened at a party and it was to be a long-lasting and famous institution. The more interesting thing to me is what's going on in Edward's head. His people are dying like flies around him, and he's throwing a series of parties. And I think you can interpret this in two ways. Edward was at the top of a hierarchical society, as evidenced by the statute of labourers, and cared nothing for dying peasants. Insulated in his false, courtly life, the king's life must go on as before, no matter what. And his extravagant display while people died was obscene. Certainly, a number of chroniclers thought that way, if they didn't quite accuse Edward that directly. The other way of looking at it was to say, well, look, what else was Edward supposed to do? Sit in a corner and mope? wring his hands? That wasn't Edward's style. He was a warrior king. All he could do was challenge the plague. Show the plague he wasn't scared and show the people he wasn't scared and that the Black Death could be defied. Keep calm, carry on, throw a party. In the words of Christy Murr, who knows, who can tell, anyone for the last choc-ice now. Personally, I go for option two, but then I like a warrior king. So there we go. Let's dismiss the plague at last and move on. Before I do, some congratulations and some thanks. Congratulations to Bill and Earl, winners of Rob's latest coin competition. And thanks to Rob for his generosity. Good luck with your visit, Rob. And secondly, my thanks to some kind donators, Tom, Piran, Michael and Stuart. Thanks for your generosity. Very much appreciated. Next week, we'll move on to the 50s and to the renewal of war. So good luck, everyone, and have a great week.